0: everybody hello hey i'm alan i'm brent and guess what we're back again for episode lucky number 13 of ab testing so how you doing brent
1: i'm doing swell good what's new with you well so we're running a little uh, we started late today uh it was very exciting did did you have a
0: hard time getting out of bed this morning
1: no so i ran in uh got to the car i was going to be right on top behind the school bus on 40th
0: yeah, and apparently you can't just like zip around them. You they, can't. They, they put that little sign out that says "Don't go." And back. I was
1: in the wrong lane. I couldn't even do a U. E.
0: That happened. Oh, wow. yeah, that happens um, even in my neighborhood. If I leave a little late, I may as well leave a lot late, and we be drive him hand a school bus for a while.
1: Oh no, I, I it's exactly true. If I yeah. can't get out of my house before seven, then stay there till eight. Seven. Ouch. Ouch. Was, I'm usually in by five thirty-six. <laughs>
0: Wow, I get in it. Yeah, I think I get in early because there's nobody here when I get here at eight.
1: Usually, there's a couple people here. There's one guy in my building that I compete with to see who who gets there first. That's a it's really, usually me.
0: That's a really dorky competition.
1: Yeah, and it's not an example I would suggest others follow.
0: All right, hey, uh, what's new with me? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, last <laughs> week, was it just last week? Yeah, I took a couple of days and went to the. Google Test Automation Conference up in Kirkland. GTAC, as the cool kids call it. A couple hundred people there. It was fun. Met a lot of people. Reconnected with a lot of people. It was a good time. But a couple things I want to talk about. I'm not going to go through a laundry list of the talks and what they're about.
1: Just but, out of curiosity, yeah. though, have you, have you gone to these events before? I assume This is so. my
0: second GTAC. I go to all the GTACs that I can drive to. He was in Seattle, and um, I can't remember. 2000. I can't remember when. 2010. Was
1: the size of the audience about, about the same as last year?
0: Yeah, it is about. Well, I didn't go last year. About the same oh, the as Seattle uh, when I went last time. Yeah, they <clears> keep it. They keep the attendance um, at a cap. I don't know what it is. Okay. All right. So anyway, a bunch of people giving talks about stuff they're doing. A lot on tools, obviously for Android and web automation. Um, Selenium is definitely, you know, becoming, not becoming, it is the de facto for for web automation.
1: Selenium is sweet.
0: Yes. Um, Cool thing like Cylindroid for Selenium on Android. Some cool little, you know, ideas. And a guy from American Express just talked about the different, you know, freely available tools he uses for testing. and It was just kind of a cool, nice little overview. But a couple themes came up I wanted to talk about. Um, Well, one theme and then one uh, observation. So a, a guy from Facebook was there. Okay. And, and Brent and I have talked about combined engineering and if can you have one engineering team? And I just wrote a couple blog posts about it. He gets up there and he uh, – up to give his talk. Not up there, but up to give his talk. And he rehashes. He restates the fact that you know, Facebook has no testers you know, and, we, and we get by. And then I thought it was interesting that his title, his role is he's the lead of a product reliability team. Okay. They don't have testers. They have product reliability. If I and if I heard right, they also have engineering productivity teams. Okay. So a lot of the things we expect those test-minded generalizing specialists to do, they don't have testers, but they have, you know, it just it it, it rehashes to me. It reiterates to me um, that the testing activity continues whether you have a test discipline
1: or test team or not. The the do you. Do you have data that confirms that? Like so those in podcast land
0: no, I don't have data. I have
1: Hold on, hold on. Those in podcast holding, land holding ca- can't see Alan's face, but the what your body language just communicated was yeah, dude, it's still a test team. You're calling it something well, else. I, uh,
0: yes and no. I think maybe a little bit I'm saying that, but I think more importantly is it doesn't freaking matter.
1: I think I think I mean you call it by a different name, but we've discussed this numerous times, and I think on the podcast that um, those roles, uh, productivity, engineering, uh, reliability, uh, are really sort of uh, non-functional requirements sure, required specialists perf team, um, and so I don't know. I mean. I would say, if we were to disambiguate the term "test," yeah, those are type of responsibilities that we funded in our organizations prior. But the key pivot is things around component tests and functional tests, right? That's going to the the dev org. And I haven't heard yet you say that this guy owned those either of those no, two no, things.
0: No, no. And I am actually, to be honest, and I hope he's not listening because I don't remember what he talked about. I just that was the interesting point I took away. Mm. You know, Generally, at most dev companies, developers are going to own that unit and functional testing. And they definitely do it at Facebook. But for some of the big picture things that people worry, that when a lot of people go up in arms and they say, oh, they don't have a test team or, some, or company X doesn't have a test team, they go, well, X and Y and Z aren't going to happen. And my point is that those things do happen.
1: Yeah, it's right, – a couple of podcasts ago, you. you brought up uh, the one scenario, the one – twitter where a guy was like if you don't have a test team you suck in in essence right and and it's just it's just not true facebook definitely has a continuous deployment model they definitely have flighting rings um they use exposure control to minimize risk right um yeah Yeah. Um, anyway what was your takeaway from i mean did you think they were doing something
0: uh, as I mentioned before, and I now I have to say it again because you don't well, freaking listen to me. Is, no, you said that's testing activity. What he, I don't remember what, he, what his talk was about. I just thought that statement was interesting. So I'm going to move on before you ask me again and I get angry, <laughs> like the angry weasel. Um, re- people that read my the, the about angry weasel part of my blog will know the whole story behind what angry weasel means. Nothing to do with me. has to do with the tooth of the weasel and a German automotive... Issue,
1: so yeah. Anyway, thank, moving on. Thank, uh, thanks for sharing. There Alan. was an,
0: there was an interesting theme. Probably, I'm not going to say half. It was more than half. Three quarters of the talks mentioned a two word phrase. Some more often, and it became like the joke. Like, oh, they said it. Everybody drink. It's like the G Tech drinking game, um, which was the term flaky tests. Brent, have you ever heard of this word before, flaky tests?
1: Yes, over and over and over and over.
0: What the hell is wrong with us? The flaky tests are so prominent. Uh, there's an interesting vanity metric people put up on their <laughs> slides of how many automated tests they run. I don't care how many automated tests you run. I guess it does give you, if you're trying to show scale, but even then, it's such a, you know, tests aren't created equal. We know this. This idea of flaky tests came up.
1: Blatant vanity Metric. And
0: uh, guess what? It's come up at Microsoft about a half a zillion. No, quad zillion. zillion. I, I, don't, I, 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 I don't, don't know. A number. Yeah. A big number. Googleplex.
1: Uh, yeah.
0: Maybe it's come up at Google Times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with, I run this test. Sometimes it's flaky. Sometimes it's not. Let me give you a statement, and I can argue both sides of this. Uh, someone said at the conference... A flaky test is worse than no test. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I... Uh, so when we talk about flaky tests, it, it reminds me of a white paper comment uh, Bill Gates did years ago where he talks talks about the automation paradox. Do you remember the automation paradox? Uh, vaguely. Yeah, automation paradox. Know,
0: was it called the automation paradox? I remember the comment. I don't remember the paper. But anyway, go on. Yeah,
1: it, The the it might have been test paradox. I don't know, whatever. Um in essence the paradox This
0: is not a podcast on long term memory and recall.
1: No. But it is one on ADHD for sure. Um the the test paradox in essence is if you can make a world's perfect test that validates the code. Then you have to actually create the test that's better than the code, so there's a then so that there's a implication that perhaps you should be using the code inside the test and not the code inside the product. That's what makes it a I, paradox.
0: I hope that was sort of a philosophical point and not
1: uh this was back in 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 the day Bill Gates still ran the show all right, and we had what. A quadrillion dollars in, in payroll going to test and uh, I remember, one uh, small percent going to engineering. It's
0: probably 15 years ago, the test architect group, we had a presentation for Bill Gates and talking about what's going on. And, and he walked into the room saying, I spend a lot of money on test. I have no idea what you guys do. We test. Yeah, exactly. The anyway, remainder. Off the track, yeah, the, the remainder. <laughs> so I think that was a really long answer. Actually a lot of words that didn't actually answer the question. So let me answer the question. No, no, no. Are flaky tests better than or worse than no tests? And it depends because not only are not all tests created equal, not all flaky tests are created equal. And by definition, flaky is a test that sometimes passes, sometimes fails, and you have to spend your time looking at it to figure out whether it's a product bug or a test bug.
1: So if you if you evaluate it across... Uh payroll cost yeah a flaky test is gonna cost you more than no test in the short term in the long term you don't know it having no test right it, no test on something that no one uses probably not gonna cost you much
0: but there seems to be an unwritten rule in test automation is i've written an automated test i've created a test that does something you know i've an automated test And now that I've written it, because it's automated, it now must run forever and ever and never and never to be retired. It must run on all platforms available because it's automated. It's free.
1: I I would say, I mean, I I don't think I would agree with particularly with where we are in in the modern world with flaky tests uh, better or worse than no test. Um, But if you're going to have tests, they need as best as possible they need to not be flaky the point of putting that test into play is you're trying to create an automated system that you can trust
0: and that's where i've gotten to is trustworthy tests you want tests that you can trust the result of uh i forget who it was but i almost screamed from my back row little um observatory when uh another speaker said uh he was asked about. He's he talking about flaky tests, and they had a bunch of flaky tests, and they do things like rerun them until they pass, and silly things like that. Um, you know, investigate them. And he mentioned the fact that we've run through in the past at Microsoft, where testers run a bunch of automation, and their new job became to investigate failure failed tests all day. But someone asked him, and it wasn't even me. Uh, he said, "So, do you investigate? Do you believe you have flaky tests?" in your tests that are passing. Do you have tests that are passing that maybe should be failing? Of course. And his answer was, and I'm going to recreate, you know that scene in the movie where you yell something out, but it doesn't really happen, you're still sitting there? That happened with me. He said, I haven't (coughs) seen that. So when asked, have you seen tests that are passing that should be failing, he goes, I haven't seen that. And the little voice in my head stood up on my chair and screamed and yelled, I'm going to back up here, have you looked (laughs) Of course, which the answer was no, and we fight, and I punch him and tear his head off and throw it down the hallway. You
1: are angry today. No, <laughs> you know,
0: it's, the things that happen in your head, they're safe there. You bottle <laughs> them up and squish them in, then that anger never gets out into the world.
1: Oh, I've been repressing feelings for decades, Alan. I get well, that. that's a whole
0: <laughs> different
1: story. The, the The other thing, like, I, I want to tie this to the modern world, I guess. Right. This reminds me of a presentation we saw from a, a colleague of ours, Michael.
0: Oh, hey, Michael's speaking at Sasquag next month, S uh, A S Q A G dot org on the third Thursday of November, whatever day that is. Uh, for Seattle listeners, come out and listen to what Michael has to say. Michael recently left Microsoft, he's hanging out uh, trying to figure out what to do next. He's uh, the, the kicker on there. If you go to sasquag dot org and uh, check it out. Um, check out the after for his talk I, I can't I'll paraphrase it here But he figured out that he didn't like testing After being a tester for 15 years So he's going to talk about that and Kind of how he came to that realization And kind of where he's going from here But I don't know any more details I wonder Bra- Bra- ta-
1: Are we talking about the same Michael?
0: Uh, Michael H? C Oh hey Peer, peer disconnect here <laughs> but, uh, but still go, if you're local Go <clears throat> to Fast on Thursday um, Tell me about Michael C
1: so Michael Michael H, yeah, he was uh, a he was a mentee of mine until very recently. Although I guess I'm, I guess he might still be, but uh, yeah, I didn't know he was doing the Sasquatch. I, sh- I should go show up. Right, Michael C. Uh, the Michael C. No, uh, so one of the things that he did is he ran um, uh, tests or test results through a Bayesian network, in essence. <coughs> and one of the things that he was able to find by, by applying data science to the tests is that you're able to determine which tests, um, when they report pass, you can trust that they're actually passing. And which tests, when they report fail, you can trust that they're actually failing. And some tests are very good negative indicators, and some are very good positive indicators. And I found that was fascinating because uh, I've been a test manager for uh, a good portion of my career. And flaky tests, yes, when you're in that role, it's just an irritant because you can see it stealing your payroll uh, day over day. Yeah, so, But if I had a signal that could tell me, hey, this suite, uh, when it passes, I can trust it. But this this other suite, I can only trust it when it fails. Then that would help me reduce the cost of Flicky.
0: I think that's a start. I'm going to tie that to something that came out of the conference and my takeaway. And I'm not going to go deeply into my diatribe on test selection. I'll save it for, I'll save it for another podcast or a blog. But what was interesting that came out, there was some email after the conference among the attendees. And I think someone from Google mentioned that, well, we use code coverage to figure out which tests, which tests hit which lines of code. So no, that's great. That's a good start. And people latched on to that was like, oh, my gosh, I know how to do test selection. Now I can do this. And let me tell you, it is just the start. Uh, and it was so it was interesting to me that, yes, you can use that. Yes, you can use uh, engines based on, you know, trying to evaluate the trustworthiness of the test and building that engine where Michael Michael's work started and needs to keep on going is there are dozens of factors that can go into what makes up a trustworthy test or what makes up a valuable test even better. Yeah. Whether a test passes or fails and I can trust that the pass and fail result is good. That's great. But I want to know whether that test is going to be valuable for me at that moment in time, which coverage provides part of the speed, the test runs fits mm-hmm. in there. If if I, can get the same value of a test that runs in one second from a test that runs in 10 minutes. That one second test is a lot more valuable. And I can go down a list, and I I need to enumerate these uh, not speaking so I forget some important ones. But the idea is what I've done in the past is build sort of a heuristic engine that takes a dozen or 20 or 30 factors of what makes up a valuable test. You know, how long has it been since that test has been run is one I use a lot. Going back to the comment about running every test on every build forever and ever, that's great. But if that test has passed every single time for the last 20 years, uh, and I don't run it today, is that okay? Some testers actually freak out. No, because the day you stop running it is the day that there'll be a bug there it'll find. So I I would say there's less value in a test that has passed every single time. But the moment I don't run it for a day or for a build, it gets a little bit more value. So there's value in... How long has it been since this test is run? Uh, so, has this has this test found a bug before? Has this test found multiple bugs? I can find multiple ways to wait bugs and and then pick. Say I have hundred million kazillion tests, and they take thirty. You know, because I'm I'm web scale, I can run you know I can run them in twenty four hours. Well, I don't have twenty four hours. I want to run tests in an hour. And you know the the data farm junkies will go well more machines, but you no, know, there's probably less than an hour of those tests that are actually valuable at that moment in time, and run an algorithm to figure out which are the most hour hour long worth of valuable tests.
1: There was a lot of science that was occurring in the last ten years. It really science
0: occurred. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, no, there was a lot of studies around, like um, in terms of some of the the variables you're talking about. Like you didn't mention co coverage
0: uh i mentioned using the cover uh, yeah i did yeah. i did. I mentioned using uh, you
1: said coverage uh, that could have meant feature coverage which is how i interpreted. it but oh. that's fine yeah
0: use, use the tools use the tools look
1: yeah it's like a lot of a lot of hypotheses around what's valuable like a, my experience is okay i didn't find a lot of value in an example um hey this test uh found a bug before versus this one didn't big uh because it turns out the bug that it found was just a stupid dev error, and they fixed it, and now it's unlikely to to do that right there's the The one reason why we had to do all these tests is because there was so much uncertainty and so so little ability to sort of get tests um correlated to the code that they're covering and the the customer scenario that they're covering.
0: There was also a big push over, you know, quantity over quality. A lot of automated tests was better than having some really good, well-crafted ones. And a lot of times flaky tests, whether they're false positives or false negatives happen because someone was just cranking out some code that did crappy junk and and they weren't thinking about writing a trustworthy test.
1: I, I remember, uh, my second-to-last TM gig, one of the PMs came to me and just just like, I don't think we have enough tests.
0: Oh <laughs> How many is enough?
1: <laughs> and and I basically said, okay, let's talk about this because I, I want to be very crisp on this discussion. What if I were to tell you that today we have a thousand tests for this area, and that I can take one IC and Create another 1,000, double those tests in one week. She's like, that would be fantastic. Let's, let's get that going. I'll write a batch file to make that happen. Yeah. And I said, hold on. What if I tell you that my 1,000 tests currently cover the product 5% and that new 1,000 tests will get me to six total? She's like, uh, what's cover the product mean? And and I said, co-coverage – so, yeah, you're very much right because uh, uh, just like Bill Gates didn't know what test did, <laughs> if Bill Gates doesn't know, right, it shouldn't expect a, a, a standard PM to know, right? Um, well, this
0: goes back into the whole – we want to count things, unfortunately. Some, actually, we I don't want to. Some people want to count things and use that as a measure of progress.
1: I want to measure things. And counts may be important to that, but counts by themselves are vanity metrics. I agree.
0: Interesting. My big takeaway at the end was, I think, you know, I've thought a lot about this and have, I think, pretty good ideas about test selection. And I've kind of, uh, I know I'm comfortable retiring tests. I'm comfortable not running tests. I'm comfortable trying to come up with, you know, I'm comfortable that I have good algorithms for figuring out which are the most important tests to run. But it was interesting that I didn't feel like anyone else was really – not only were they there or close or whether they cared. They were happy just to run lots of tests and ignore failures or, or have logic in the test to rerun the test if it failed or silly things like that.
1: So your your story reminds me of another colleague of ours, Harry. Who, um, when I worked with him, was over when I was part of the Bing team. And Harry had come from uh, Google and was working there as well. And he had taught the Bing team this concept called heuristic-based testing, which is something he had learned from Google. And a heuristic-based test is one that's good enough. It has a benefit that it is super fast. right? You you don't... um, as an example, if you're trying to test a map function, instead of uh, uh, testing the directions uh, accurately and, and going through, is this right, is this just right, and coming up with your own algorithm, go, can I find a better algorithm that it should have picked? What you do is you load, load up another shipping map software and you compare side by side, which ends up being a ton easier. Uh, Than trying to map through the algorithm.
0: Well, isn't that, you know, I'm very familiar with Harry's work on, you know, using models for this. It was, um, but. Uh, This was more than, this was. This was relatively. But but what's interesting is, um, and I'm a big fan of Harry. Yeah. uh, What we used to do, one of the mistakes testers make a long time ago is, and I've done this myself early in my career, is I ended up re implementing the functionality of the program as the Oracle. So I did this, I was writing um, some graphic. I want to make sure some. Gra- could I use the function get pixel in Windows to to test set pixel? You know, could I u- could I could I set a pixel to gray and then get a pixel and see if it was gray? If it was, the test passed. And, and, like, and that's and,
1: where test paradox comes in.
0: And what's interesting is yeah, because I I went through this big thing where okay, well, I, actually I can query the graphic driver and get the actual color there rather than go through the API, blah, 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 which is actually what set, get pixel does. Right. So um, and what. Harry's solution was rather than rewrite that oracle yourself, use the competition as an oracle. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that, but it's, it's it's and a hell of a lot easier.
1: It it is a hell of a lot easier, a ton faster, but it does create flaky tests. Cuz every so often you'll end up with a scenario where actually what your product is doing is better than the competitor.
0: Yeah, and right? what I've been on products that I won't name where we had a competitor and our goal was to be bug for bug compatible compatible with our competitor. We had
1: <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. We're, so anyway, yeah. I think
0: um probably I've encountered more, probably more, than more than my... on G Tech. We're gonna move on. Yep. Um, let's talk a little about
1: uh, So you wanna talk about the culture of meetings? No,
0: I talk about meetings. So two okay. now Uh, Where was I going to start? I had a thread with some peers last night, or yesterday afternoon, and I said, we're talking about, I asked some questions, and I said, I don't really know, and then somebody said, we should hash this out in a room, because email's tough, and I'm all about getting out of email. Um, And I did something that I rarely do. I rarely do. Because I'm trying to get in sync with this team, and just a lot of unknowns, and I... You will rarely hear this phrase from me out loud or in email. I said, "How about we set up a weekly recurring meeting to hash some of these things out?"
1: If if I were next to you at that time, I would have stared at you like, w- "What did you just what? <laughs> what did you
0: just say?" So, um, a lot of people think meetings are bad.
1: You're 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 starting to grow up. It's cute. Meetings meetings can be bad. You'll be suggesting V-Teams next.
0: I'm going to suggest punching you in the throat.
1: <laughs> All right. So, what problem did you solve so, with this suggestion?
0: Uh, let me let me finish. Let me finish. So, um, uh, the reason is <coughs> the reason I it doesn't hear it's coming from me is I think many recurring meetings are end up turning into the let's sit around the room while everyone does email and someone will basically I've actually been in an org where people got in the room and um, everybody got their laptops out there working along and they didn't know what the meeting was about so someone said did you read the email I sent and they said no so he read the email out loud to the room it's like the epitome it's like oh my god this is surreal it should be in like like an office space kind of movie it's crazy I think a good example of recurring meetings at work are daily stand-ups yep they have a specific agenda you you stay on track it's like these things happen you're done Uh, I think Brainstorming, not really for a recurring meeting, but brainstorming meetings work well for meetings. Uh, status meetings, nah. uh. Brent's shaking his head too. So, nuh uh.
1: like, no. So,
0: I think when you need to get alignment, um, and, and this meeting will probably work a lot like a stand up meeting. It's weekly, it's weird, but where it's, I will gather agenda items. I'll figure, here's what we want to hash out, make sure we're on the same page on. Um, and then, try and end as quickly as possible. Cancel when we don't need it.
1: So um, it's more of a synchronization meeting than really a status It really
0: is. It's not, not a status meeting at all. I refuse to even attend someone else's status meeting. Uh, unless, you know, I shouldn't say refuse. I avoid. Because some cases I will go if I want to get information, but generally cause my experience is status meetings are a big waste of time.
1: They do not make Alan happy. I know this from uh, e- even if it's a call-in status meeting, it does not make Alan here, here's happy. Here's the
0: point. And, you know, I don't want to come across as, oh, meetings are bad. I don't want to go to a meeting. But what I want to come across is if I'm going to show up at a meeting and everyone's on their laptop and you're telling me a bunch of stuff that I, I could learn just as well if you sent them to me via email, uh, I, uh, I
1: don't care. the The fact that everyone's on their laptop, yeah. Is a is a is a death knell sign.
0: So let me tell. Let me put another spin on this. So recurring, me. I'm going to have this meeting. It's going to be great. Um, and but you know, I I will schedule these things when they're necessary. So let me flip this around. Um, I've been trying to meet with um, a manager in another group to talk about some stuff. And calendar. His calendar. My calendar is pretty flexible. I have some meetings on there, but they're all almost all of them are movable. Uh, calendar is totally packed for two weeks. So I set a meeting for two weeks out. Find a slot. Come to his office. Be great. Day of the meeting, two weeks later, uh, his admin emails me. He's not like a, he's not a exec or anything, but his admin emails me and says, uh, so-and-so is really busy. Need to push this out two more weeks. And to me, I don't know this person or their org, but when you have, even if you're a manager, especially if you're a manager. I know, I know managers do have more meetings, but when you're that, when you're packed in meetings all day long in, for two weeks at a time and your next opening, it's, a, it's kind of a red flag for me. I don't know. Do you have an experience similar? I'm just kind of curious if I'm the only one that that, that sort of sparks the, the bristly, spidey meeting sense. Oh,
1: no, I absolutely do. And, and again, um, for those on, on podcast land, one difference between Alan and I is I am a manager, and that is my life. Right? It, it. How many
0: of those meetings you think you, are, you're there because you're moving the product forward versus you're there because you're expected to be there? Uh,
1: I don't go to the ones that I'm expected to be there. I go to the ones where either... I, I actually take a, a, an open space sort of principle uh, where either I will learn something or I believe I can contribute. But even then... Uh, because of my unique role right now in the organization, there's a lot of high demand for my attention. I actually think it's because I'm wearing too many hats and that I should conscientiously begin a process of delegating some of these hats to people who I'm trying to grow into leadership. And that's what I'm going to look into next. And it's thankful that most of my team doesn't listen to this podcast.
0: Well, this is another reason why I think... Uh, flattening orgs is a good idea. I think if, if you're going to have managers that need to be, and they're actually good meetings, but manager, managers are going to be in meetings most of the day, let's have fewer managers. Let's have more people getting work done. The Not the, that manager work isn't work, but you know what I mean.
1: No, so the the challenge will be once, in order to make that succeed, we have to flatten and get rid of command and control. Yeah, yes. Right? The, the, I'm, I'm, the reason why I'm in all these shameless meetings.
0: Shameless plug in my last post talked yeah. exactly about that. You need to have... Flatter orgs help in a lot of ways, but you have to have the right managers leading those orgs or they're going to fail.
1: If if I have to be in every decision meeting with that that my team of 30...
0: Don't have a decision meeting.
1: Right. Then it, it's never going to scale, right? It, it, well, that's kind of what happens. The, the reason, the, the, the rationale for the, all of these sort of high-level status meetings is there, of course, they're decision meetings. Um, one of the things... And we have a mailbag item, and we're almost out of time. But one of the things that reminds me of is a conversation between uh, a friend of, of yours and mine, uh, Mr. James Whitaker. Um, he, everyone listening to this podcast knows who he is, so I won't obfuscate it. But he wrote a blog post about a year ago, uh, basically saying on the culture of meetings and just banned them all. And I actually. What? James being an extremist? Weird. I know, wacky. It's totally out of his character. Right, um, and it we was, love you, James.
0: <laughs> but we know you're too cool to listen to our
1: podcast. So He's not one of the F three, off. for sure. Um, and it was interesting because I pushed back on that. And I said, you're going too far, man. And I um, walked him through. Like a, a meeting, if it adds ROI to the system, it needs to be done. And I walked him through sort of the, the lean principle around how you decide. So lean, the number one principle of lean is get rid of waste out of the system. And if we have a meeting that is waste, yeah, get rid of it. And I walked him through. It's, he was like, well, how do you know? And I said, well, it's very easy. If you, could, if you would do more of it if you could, um, then it's not waste. That's value you're adding to the system. Uh, if you wouldn't do more of it if you could, but would rather instead would do um, less or it could do less, then it's blatant waste. But if you can't do less, then it's actually just the cost of doing business. Now, when I, when I bring this up, I, I, we talk about stand-up, right? Um, most times, you could do more stand-up, but you wouldn't, right? Right. But And you could also do less, but you wouldn't. Right. Stand-up is basically a, a cost for execution. Right. It, 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 it adds some amount of value. It, okay. You don't want to get rid of it. But again, you can overdo it. So you don't need to have three stand-ups a day. Um, whereas status meetings, uh, I, I would argue for the most part, they're waste.
0: Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And, so, what's interesting is you can have a, it's not all meetings are labeled so clearly, but I like this model because you may walk out of a meeting and go, "Wow, I, there was some value there, but I don't feel like it was a great use of my time." And you can ask question, "Could we do less of it?" And you go, "And here's a message that uh, I hit that the default me- meeting length seems to be an hour long." It's like, it's like, "Could we do this less of this?" Yeah, let's try. A, let's try and do this meeting in a half hour now.
1: Uh, one of the games, because I'm all about data-driven now, so one of the games I do to keep myself sane when I'm in in these meetings is I count the number of open laptops, and I I, I try to estimate how much that meeting cost Microsoft.
0: Oh, that's uh, that's a dangerous game.
1: Oh, it's fun though.
0: <laughs> and if you're running a meeting, and I'm, I'm gonna close yeah. on this, but. Uh, generally, if I'm running a meeting, uh, I try and engage people. And some people just are there to listen and 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 veg out. Sometimes, like if it's a some meeting, some people have like a something that comes up they need to attend to over their laptop. And I I'm not going to demand laptops be closed, but I try and make sure the meeting makes them want to close them or or makes them need to
1: close them. I went to uh, a, a seminar by Eric Reese. Oh yeah, it was pretty cool. And one of the things that he started off before he started talking, he's like, if you want to have your laptop open or your mobile phone, go ahead, because I interpret that as feedback. Hey. Very good. Yeah.
0: And, and my laptop was open the whole time at GTAC because I was I was tweeting things and they even gave me a, I got I got a special Seattle GTAC uh, hoodie because I was one of their top tweeters about GTAC. Okay. So, yeah. So, yeah, I had a lot to them up- for that like until I was listening. Um, and then taking care of some work stuff at the same time. So, do you want to? Is it time? It's it is. its been a while. It's time. Hey, kids. You know what it's time for? Mailbag! All right. T- uh, two things from the mailbag. One short one, one long one. Uh, the short one is... Uh, someone asked a while back, and I'm sorry I-, I didn't find the comment, but someone asked, Hey, what software do you use to record your podcast? And I think as far as I know, um, 90%, of, at least of the the amateur podcast, or what's below amateur? I don't know. Uh, use uh, uh, freeware software um, or uh, called Audacity. It's great. It works for, um, it scales really well. You can record whole albums on this software. It's, it's really great. And is um, that what we're using? That's what we're using, yeah. Oh. We use, uh, it's called Audacity. Just search A-U-D-A-C-I-T-Y. So that's that's taken care of. Yep. And the other one is, uh, last time we talked about uh, peer evaluation and feedback, and Brent gave me this uh, exercise he uses when he says, um, "You know, how would you rate this, uh, what I did on a scale of 1 to 10, and what would make it a 10? And then Neil Studd wrote in and he says, Thanks for a great episode, guys. You're welcome. Yes, go et near etcetera, etc., etc. Good information there. Read the comments on angryweasel.com whack ab testing. But he says, My only concern with Brent's suggestion, what would they need to do to make it a ten, is that when scaled up amongst many reviewers, it could result in a laundry list of people's tiny flaws, which could be would be depressing to receive. So I would trust the manager to filter and collate the list down. But how do you deal with you know, that potential
1: uh, outcome? So I have never actually encountered that. Uh, the the feedback mechanism. Um, so Neil does point out something that that could be very interesting because usually when I do this feedback. Uh, paradigm i'm doing it face to face with the person and they're not thinking about the well uh, other than alan uh they're not thinking about the the little minutia. um aggregated up yeah that absolutely could be a, a, an issue and and i would rely on the manager to do exactly as neil suggests to to collate that and to, to discover the patterns yeah. out of those individual things the I agree. um the other issue is it's very rare to encounter someone giving, giving, from my experience, giving a number less than four. If you remember the the, the process, they come up with their own number, and then they have to um, communicate what could have been done differently in some sort of time range uh, to move that number to a 10. That first number isn't so much important except for that it. it it communicates where they're coming from. And a lot of the times, a four really means, yeah, this guy really irritates me. But we're talking and I don't want to come across as this guy really irritates me. A five is almost always average. And a seven is, you know, just slightly above average.
0: Yeah. And people have their different interpretations on that as well. You know, we get these yeah. uh, surveys that say, you know, you, you know blah, blah, blah. Dissatisfied, you know, very dissatisfied, dissatisfied, neither satisfied or dissatisfied, satisfied, very satisfied. Typical five point scale. And there's some people um, who will never put very satisfied because it think it always could have been better. Yeah. So but but some people will go, it was it was pretty good. I'll say very satisfied.
1: Oh so so, so, so there's a, lot there's a lot of, of time-
0: variation in, in so that number one that one to ten scale, uh Without any, since it's purely subjective, mm-hmm. there's tons of room for variation. So, yeah, it's about the discussion and the points, not about the score.
1: The the points afterwards, the, the second bit, it's about taking the feedback and deriving it into something that's actionable. If you if you guys remember the phrase, it's basically, what could I have done differently in order to score that 10? Whereas, um, so one of the positive things is that that kind of filters out the subjective, right? Hey, Alan needs to stop being so angry. Right? Well, how much non-angry needs does he need to be? It it about three beers worth. It it translates the feedback into something a bit more actionable. The the other thing that I would suggest though as well is if 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 you use this technique or or let's say we operationalize it in some peer feedback form someday. Um, <clears throat> just because the person gave you their opinion of what you could have done doesn't mean it's valuable. Right? it's everybody has their opinion and, it, and it's priceless that they gave you that feedback. But it's still up to you, uh the person the feedback receiver to decide what they want to do with that feedback. And you may decide, you know what? Yeah. If if I were to satisfy that guy's criteria, I'm going to have to give up something that I truly value. So I'm just going to have to live with um that consequence and it's all good of course it's always all good right guess what are we out of time we that, are
0: that is the what i was having you guess nice guess congratulations hey, thanks
1: for the mailbag items keep them coming we love those things
0: yeah we'll talk about anything right yeah, as you can tell all right thanks everybody i'm alan i'm brent and we'll see you next time mike